some regards, this morning, we're taking a bit of a break from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Not a full break, but a bit of a break, because what we're going to end up doing is trying to trace through the scriptures in regards to the importance of the seventh day. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us a few things about the seventh day, but that gets way further blown up and the detail increases throughout Genesis all the way through and into the New Testament that I want us to take a look at that because the seventh day is a day of tremendous significance and it's a day that continually gets referred back to almost more than any other day specifically. And so in the Ten Commandments, you have the Lord telling the nation of Israel to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the reason why is because the Lord made the world in six days and then on day seven he rested. And that day seven acknowledgement and referral happens time and time again. And so in a lot of respects, as you just think about the creation week and how we're going to travel through it at this point, What we did last week was hit days four, five, and six, just barely touching on the creation of man and woman, specifically just actually almost only touching on the creation of an ear. And then we're going to take that break away from man and woman. We're going to hit the Sabbath today. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to hit man and woman much more in detail because we're going to begin thinking through what was the command that the Lord gave them. What did he tell Adam to do? What did he tell both of them in Genesis chapter 1 to do? How are they complementary to each other in accomplishing that task that they've been given and then we're going to take a look at in the week following what happened in regards to the fall and what has happened now with the consequences of the fall and then what's the promise that happens as well so that's where we're going to track through through the month of November as we lead up to and get ourselves to that day right that Sunday right after Thanksgiving Um, which will be when we do our memory verses for Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So next week I'm going to pass around the clipboard one more time. We've got a few blanks that still need to be filled in, but then what that will let us do is the week following we'll get you your verses printed out as we have done. You'll have two weeks then, and then we'll get ready for the reciting of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 from memory on that Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, So if you've not been here for one of those moments, it's pretty cool. And one of the things that I think is just really, really fun to do, I just kind of love the parade of people and the opportunity for us to together um, demonstrate that Bible memory is important and we're going to Put some time and effort into it. So, all right, head on over to Genesis chapter 2. That's where you should be. Give you a little bit of details of where we are going over the next several weeks. But before we get into the text, I want to pray and we're going to hop in. We're not going to spend a ton of time in Genesis 2 specifically because we are going to be trying to trace through then what happens with the instruction regarding the Sabbath throughout the rest of the scriptures that really the day seven becomes so crucial and important for. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to help us make sense of these things. Father God, I come and ask that you would come and be our teacher this morning. God, help us to make sense of what it is that you have said in your word. God, there's not a lot of detail given about this seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. We read a few things and a few verses, but we see throughout other places in your word that this day has tremendous significance. It has tremendous spiritual significance. And it's something that we most certainly need to pay attention to. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to do that. God, help us to see clearly 
the gospel in day seven and what it is that you intend and intended for this day to accomplish. So God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds that think well. God, our goal in this is for worship and sanctification. We want to praise you. We want to declare your glory and your worth. We pray that as we do, that you would make us more like Jesus. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been going, our three basic principles haven't changed, but I want to keep just reminding us of them, that the foundation we're building from is that the Bible is completely true and trustworthy. The process we're undertaking is that we're going to think and not be afraid of good questions along the way. And the goal, as you just heard me pray, is for worship and sanctification. Sanctification being the process of becoming more like Christ. Of learning to think how he thinks and act how he acts and value what he values and love how he loves. And so that's what we want. We want to look more like Jesus. We're not just trying to win an argument. We're trying to become more like our Savior, and so that's what we're aiming for, and we're aiming to accomplish. And so, Genesis chapter 2 gives us then what it is the Lord did on day 7, and we're going to see some of those repetitions from Genesis chapter 1 begin to fall and begin to stop. These things get repeated through day 6, but then there's a change that happens. There are some similarities still, but there is a change that takes place. And so the repetition of, and God said, and God saw, let there be, and there was, the declaration by God that it was good, evening and morning, the word day with a number according to their kinds, all of those things we begin to see begin to show up less and less, and some of them are completely un or non-existent in day 7. But you have in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, we are told this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, Because on it, God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. And so you have here specifically day 7 referenced three different times through verses 1 through 3. And it's referenced in a different way than you have the other days being referenced. Let me show you what I mean by that. And you're not going to see this show up in this type of detail in your English translations and our English translations unfortunately but this would be a literal translation of what's happening each time that word day shows up with a number so you have on day one or one day you have on the second day you you've got some differences there so on day one you have literally the words one day actually being in order Our English translations probably give you, as mine gives me, the first day. Well, the literal translation is actually one day. And it's believed by scholars that I would trust and recommend to you that that, that God's actually defining for us what a day is there. And that's part of the distinction in the words that he uses. And so as we come to the text and ask ourselves the question, what does the text say we have to make some observations such as these, and we got to make some notes in regards to this. And so you have where in Genesis chapter 1, there was evening and there was morning one day. God actually now, after creating light in the absence of the sun at this point, but with the earth spinning on its axis, there being evening and morning, and him defining for us what actually is a day. But then you have on... 2, 3, 4, and 5, the absence of what would be called the definite article. That's the word the. You have the word a being the indefinite article. It means that something is just kind of there or something is specifically 
there. And so why is the sixth day written with a definite article? Well, it's the last day of God creating. It's the day where God made and and surveyed everything that he did. And in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Another one of those changes in the repetitions that we've seen where the other five days God declared that it was good but now on day six there is a difference in the language used and even in the words of God's self-declaration it is now very good as he surveys everything that takes place. So the reason day six probably has the sixth day is because it is the day of completing the acts of creation and it is the day of God surveying everything that has taken place and it is God now saying that is done but you see the same thing get repeated then on day seven the seventh day our English translations actually have that and it would be a correct literal translation and we're told here on the seventh day God rested And that's where the days stop. There is no eighth day mentioned. The days stop there at day seven. And we are given that, I think, for a specific reason and purpose. Perhaps common to our world is just God setting forth the standard of a seven-day week. And how we measure time in regards to that. Days are measured as the earth makes one rotation around its axis. Years are measured as the earth makes one orbit around the sun. And those all divide really, really nicely by seven. You got to throw in leap year. You got to catch up for a little bit as well. But you have God giving us the week. And God setting into motion what a week would look like. And this gets repeated time and time and time and time again. Where this week and this rhythm of a week is what he gives to his people as he gives them instruction on how it is and what it looks like to follow him. And so it's on day seven that we're told that God has rested. So let's ask ourselves the question, what exactly is God resting from There's a couple things that I would submit to you that God is not doing and that God is doing. In the not category, God is not resting because he's grown tired. God somehow did not use and expend all of his resources and found himself needing a nap to replenish the energy he had spent in creating during days one through six. That is not why God is resting here. That is why you and I rest, but that is not why God has rested. He has not grown tired. His energy supplies have not in any way dwindled. God is not resting in the sense that he has ceased from ruling and reigning. So I don't want us to conclude that resting is a checkout mentally or even in what God is actually doing. God is resting. The scriptures tell us that he is resting, but he is still ruling and reigning. And so there's some huge implications there because there's a worldview philosophy called deism that says this, God created everything. He made the world, days one to six. Yes and amen, he made it. And it's as if he made a watch And he wound up the watch and now all he's doing is just observing from a distance the watch ticking away. It's the worldview philosophy called deism, that God is the blind watchmaker, that he's just as surprised by life events when they happen as you and I are when they happen. He doesn't actually know. He's not omniscient. He's learning alongside the rest of us. We're going to get into the Christmas music season not too long from now. Some of us are already there, praise the Lord. And there will be a song played on popular radio stations of Christmas music that says, From a distance, God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. It's one of those songs that shows up every December. And nothing could be further from the biblical truth. 
God is not just watching us from a distance. So God has not ceased from ruling and reigning and being actively involved. Hebrews 1 Chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us that God is actively, Jesus himself is actively upholding the universe by the word of his power. And that has not stopped. So God is not resting in the sense that he has ceased from ruling and reigning. So those would be the things I would put in the not category. Let me give you three things I think God is resting from He's resting from his creative work that he did in days 1 to 6. He's no longer speaking sun, moon, and stars into existence. He's no longer speaking living things into existence. He's still ruling and reigning over them. Those stars are still shining because he's upholding them by the word of his power, but he's no longer saying, let there be, and then observing that there was. He has placed into living things, both plant and, 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 and creatures and certainly human beings, the DNA genetic information for them to begin following his command to fill and multiply. And he is still actively involved in there, but he is not creating new animals in the sense that he did on day six. So he's resting from his creating work. I think one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier, that we see God resting is he's giving us the pattern of a seven-day week. We're going to see this show up again as we look briefly through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And he's giving us a model, thirdly. God is resting to give us a model of what rest looks like and to lead us to himself. And we'll see that become that much more clear as we get into the New Testament. And so we have in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, the heavens and the earth were finished. That word finished means they were done. They were complete. And all the host of them. And on day 7 or on the 7th day, God finished his work that he had done. And he had rested on the 7th from all his work that he had done. Look at verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That word blessed shows up again now for at least the third different time in Genesis 1 and 2. That word blessed means to speak words invoking divine favor. The first time we see that word blessed show up is in regards to the swimming and creature, or flying creatures, the swimming creatures and the flying creatures. I think the implication there, because it's not said about land creatures, is that they fall under that category. So when God blessed the swimming creatures and the flying creatures, he is equally blessing the land and the creeping creatures that he makes. We'll see the word blessed show up again in regards to man and woman. And I think part of the reason we see that word blessed show up is because God's giving us some categories of thought here. The first is in regards to the, the animals and the creatures that he, have, that he has made, which are uniquely different from the plant and vegetation that he has made, which are also uniquely different from the sun, moon, and stars and the, the uh, celestial bodies that he has made. And so he blesses the flying creatures, the swimming creatures, I would say by implication, the land creatures and the creeping things as well. And we see the word blessed show up again day six in regards to man and woman and he blesses them because they're different than the swimming and flying and creeping and crawling and land creatures but then we see the word blessed show up again here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 in regards to day 7 because of that day is different and that word blessed becomes a marker for us to understand what it is God is doing here and God blesses the seventh day declares that it is holy and what he does is he begins to now unfold what patterns and principles of rest look like and we see that unfold further and further as God's people get delivered from Egypt and then as that moves forward into the New Testament where we learn specifically that the Sabbath rest was a physical thing, but it was always intended to point to a spiritual reality. 
So if you got your Bibles, let's go over to Exodus chapter 16. Think through the wilderness years just for a few minutes together. And you've got a handout on your, or in your bulletin that's going to give you a table I'm going to put on the screen here not too long from now. And so that should help you track through because God built this pattern of rest into the fabric of the law he gave to his people and he did so in some pretty amazing ways but what I want to do and and it's gonna it's we're gonna take a little time to do it but I think it'll be helpful I just want to read all of Exodus chapter 16 for you read along with me you don't have to read out loud it's not that morning we did that a couple weeks ago but let me read exodus chapter 16 for you because we're going to begin to see this pattern emerge and then we're also going to begin to see what God's people do in response to it and they don't trust him they want to say we we think we got a better plan and how true is that in our lives Where God gives us instruction, which we know maybe cognitively is for our good and for his glory, and yet we we don't trust him. We think we got a better plan. Well, these things are part of the human condition. In a couple weeks from now, we'll see that on display in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve and the fruit. But here it's on display with the nation of Israel. They've been delivered from Egypt. They have walked across the Red Sea. Moses in chapter 15 has sung this beautiful song of deliverance. And then in beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, we're told they set out for Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when he sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill us and the whole assembly with hunger. Just hold on a moment. They had just watched the Lord part the Red Sea completely destroy the Egyptian army. And here they're saying, we don't have beef. We wish we were dead. Translation, God, you're not satisfying my appetites. And I'm a little upset with you right now. They prefer death over choosing to trust in God. Well, as will be the case throughout much of their history... Moses then goes and intercedes for them and has a conversation with the Lord. Here the Lord initiates it. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are, that you grumble against us. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight or evening you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then... You shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you should have in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could, and Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Here's where we begin to see this pattern emerge. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left lay aside to to be kept until morning. So they laid aside till morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, because they didn't trust him, and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh. Skip down to verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. Till they came to the habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And so in the wilderness years, this principle of rest begins to be established. And it's established here in Genesis 16 in regards to what it is the Lord wants his people to do in trusting his provision and his promises. It gets reiterated come Exodus 20. It gets put into the law. And you have the command specifically, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But on the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And you have this pattern of rest instituted and now specifically commanded. Thinking through the Sabbath and the patterns of rest, One of the ways that I think is easy for us to maybe get our minds wrapped around it is to think through it in regards to what's happening with the land, what's happening with the people, and what's happening with the animals. And if you looked across and I gave you the scriptures on on the back of that sheet that you can go through and trace and track through yourself this coming week, but if you did that, there's some things that begin to emerge every seventh day. There's a command to rest. It's the Sabbath day. And the explanation given is you rest on the seventh because God rested on the seventh. And so in regards to what would happen every week, week in and week out, you have a day of rest. Well, the land doesn't really have anything happening to it in that sense. Because if you had crops planted, you're not pulling up those crops every week to put them back in on the next day. You kind of just let them go. But the people are commanded to rest. And the animals are told to rest as well. Or the people are told to rest the animals. But then every seven years, there's this thing that comes. And it's the sabbatical year. And I think one of the main questions that emerges out of this year from the perspective of the people, how are we going to eat? Now, while the nation of Israel walked and lived in the wilderness for 40 years, the question of what they were going to eat came through meat at night, bread in the morning. That's what they did for 40 years. That was their diet. They get into the promised land and now we're told there's this 
sabbatical year where the land is now given rest. So six years you shall plant and sow and harvest and reap and cultivate. And on the seventh year you let the land go follow. And what that means is whatever volunteer plants come up, there was allowance for them to eat of those things, but they weren't allowed to go and sow seed. They weren't allowed to go and do any of the farming techniques that they would have learned over the years. They weren't allowed to cultivate the land. You're not allowed to pick any weeds from the land. You just let it go. And that was to happen every seven years. Well, people every seven years were actually not just supposed to get rest. They were supposed to get release. And it's in Deuteronomy 15 that this concept of release begins to be on display. Every creditor was to grant a release to the people they had given loans to. Deuteronomy 15 actually says, don't try to find creative ways to circumvent this. Grant a release for those who you have loans with. Indentured servants, or as we probably would just consider them today, employees, must be let go. They were to be given liberal furnishings upon their departure. This was not you being fired. This was somehow something happened where you submitted yourself in indentured servitude to somebody who was some type of land owner or property owner, and you worked for them, and they gave you a wage, but every seventh year you had the option to go free. And you also had the option to stay. And if you stayed, we're told in Deuteronomy 15 that, you know, you may choose to do so. And if you do, your owner is going to pierce your ear. And you're going to now have a sign and a symbol that you have voluntarily chosen to submit yourself to him and be his employee. And the language there is, if he loves you, So this is not slavery like we often think of in North America because of our cultural and historical context. This would be much more of an employee-employer relationship, but the people were to be given release. Animals, again, were to rest. But as I said, the real big question was, what are we going to eat? Well, every 50 years there was something that happened as well. It's called the year of Jubilee. Now, I cannot find a single reference in the scriptures that records that the year of Jubilee was ever celebrated. I don't believe the people of Israel ever did it. But what was to happen if you have every seven days a day of rest and every seven years, the seventh year being a year of rest, after seven of those cycles, so 49 years, you're to put an extra year of rest that's why it says two the 49th year would have been the last seventh and then you have year 50 being declared the year of jubilee would have been an extra year so the land would get two years rest the people would have rest and year 49 they would have had release like they would have every other seventh year but now in year 50 there's also a command for return and what that means is that the entire nation of Israel was supposed to remigrate back to the original land borders that they were given as God distributed the land to the 12 tribes massive remigration back And if you had been in charge of that section of land over there and had loaned it out to somebody, that contract is done and you were to go re-migrate back to the land and the the, the family clan, the, the homestead, if you will. Now, once back there, you could renegotiate terms. You could enter back into contracts, but you did so on a 49-year basis because... It specifically tells you, in 50 years, you're just going to be done, and you're going to re-migrate all the way back. It's fascinating in Leviticus chapter, I believe it's 25, in regards to this year of Jubilee, you have God answering the question, what are we going to eat? 
And he does so in this way. On year six, I'm going to give you a triple yield. And it's going to cover year seven. And it's going to cover year eight. And it's going to be a part in there for the beginning of year nine until the crops come in that you planted at the beginning of year eight. Let's try to tie together some ideas about what Sabbath rest in the Old Testament is. It most certainly was for physical rest. The animals were supposed to have a day where they didn't work and they didn't plow and they didn't pull. The people were to have a day of rest where they didn't work. And just think through in the contrast of that in regards to what they would have experienced in Egypt under the backbreaking labor of Pharaoh building all of his architectural ambitions. And now God says, I want you to rest. But Sabbath also served as a constant reminder of God's promise for provision and protection. Every seven years, we're not planting anything. Where are we going to eat? God's saying, I got it. Trust me. Every seven years, the indentured servant gets and is granted a release. Because God's saying, trust me. Every 50 years, the land has two years of rest, and you return back to your homestead and kind of reset everything. And God's saying, trust me. And Sabbath rest is to serve as a signpost of salvation. We'll see these come much more clear as we continue. If we would fast forward to the New Testament, or as we do, Jesus gets in a lot of hot water in regards to what he does on the Sabbath. In Mark 2, you have the disciples plucking grain. They're hungry. They're plucking grain, and the Pharisees take issue with that. And Jesus, in that passage, says, Look, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath has a point, but you guys have taken that point, and you've completely blurred it. You've completely missed the point. Gets in some hot water in Mark 2. In Mark 3... Records Jesus on a Sabbath healing a man with a withered hand. Pharisees take huge issue with that. In John 5, chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 of John is all about Jesus healing a man who is invalid and all of the response and reaction that happens afterwards. Those three chapters all go back to Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And then you have in John 9:14 Jesus healing the man that was born blind. Jesus demonstrates some things about the Sabbath. He has some things to say about the Sabbath. We see Sabbath rest being a part of the observance of what the believers or the disciples and Jesus himself did in the New Testament, but in a different way. In a different way. Thinking through Sabbath rest in the New Testament, we have some further explanation given. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 4. This is part of where the New Testament and the Old Testament come together for us. It's part of where we see the connection between a physical sign and a spiritual reality. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 are some of those chapters in the New Testament that help us make sense of what it was that happened in the Old and why did the Israelites not get it? What was the disconnect? And so in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, you have the writer saying, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's a quotation from Genesis 2. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore, verse 6, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long after 
in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's happening there, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, and we're just kind of hopping in. If we would go to the beginning of chapter 3, we'd see it further developed. The writer of Hebrews is asking this question in saying that Jesus is greater than Moses. Why did the Israelites not get it? Why did they not ever actually find the rest that God promised? Why did they not ever get to celebrate a year of Jubilee? Why did they get led into captivity? Why did the Assyrians come and ransack the north? Why did the Babylonians come and ransack the south? Why are Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in captivity in Babylon for seven years? What is happening? What's the answer there? And the answer given is because of their unbelief, their lack of trust in what God had said to them. And God's saying to the nation of Israel, I'm going to put you in captivity. He does so specifically saying, you will be there for 70 years and my land is going to get the rest you never let it have. The writer of Hebrews picks up on that picks up on the significance of day seven and what it means spiritually. And he continues then in verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, what that means is if entering the promised land had been all the rest there ever was, God would not have spoken of another day later on. There was rest in the promised land. God intended for there to be rest every seven years and every 50 years and every seven days in the promised land. But that was not the end goal. It was a physical sign to point to a spiritual reality. So then, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. You see what the author of Hebrews just did there in verses 9, 10, 11? The physical sign of Old Testament Sabbath rest. Day seven, God resting. Day seven, you rest. Year seven, you rest. Years 49 and 50, you rest. Was intended to show us that when we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we are resting from our works as God rested from his. Day seven is all about the gospel. The Sabbath in the Old Testament is all about the gospel. So what are we to do with this? Sabbath rest today. The Sabbath was instituted by God as a physical sign pointing to spiritual realities. It is, however, the only one of the Ten Commandments, that's why I have the C capitalized, the only one of the Ten Commandments to not be repeated in the New Testament. Sabbath today is not a law or a commandment that Christians must obey. We're not under law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. We unpacked that when we walked through the Sermon on the Mount in the beginning part in Matthew chapter 5. There's not a single law that was given to the nation of Israel that is still binding for us today. But what you have in the New Testament is a lot of overlap, a lot of similarities but in regards to the Ten Commandments, with one notable distinction. There's no command for Sabbath rest for today's believer. It is, however, something that you may choose to follow. You could pick a day. You could say, I want whatever day to be my day of Sabbath rest. And you're not wrong to do so. But we're not to judge one another based on what days we follow or not follow. It no longer becomes a mark of following God. It's no longer the physical sign. And so Paul in Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17 just very, very specifically says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow 
of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. It's just a shadow. It was to point forward. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us the law would never make perfect, but the law was a shadow of all the things to point to Christ. So why do we rest today? Why would there be the need and patterns of rest today? It's not a commandment. You could walk out of here and go, I don't have to observe the Sabbath. I'm not going to observe the Sabbath. And in one sense, I'd say you are free to do so. You could walk out of here this morning and say, you know what? I'm going to make Tuesday my Sabbath. And here's what I'm going to do on Tuesdays. And in that sense, you are free to do so. I would caution you from following any organization or person that would say you must obey the Sabbath and must do it on this day because that completely disregards the teaching of the New Testament. But I do think there is the principle and need for patterns of rest in our lives today. And here's why. Like the land, like the animals, like the people were to physically rest, they're certainly significance for us to physically rest for us to mentally rest I work a job where I'm not doing back-breaking labor there are days where my job consists of this not strenuous rest for me involves a good long run Involves working and building something. Involves things that physically make me exert energy. Because it's part of the way that God has wired me to recharge. It gives me a mental break. But we rest physically, we rest mentally. We rest to remind us of God's sovereignty, His promises. His provision. We rest to remind ourselves that when we ask the question, where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? That God has promised to provide those needs. We rest to remind us that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone and it's a gift that we do not work for. It's what Hebrews chapter 4 gets after. Verses 10 and 11 For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. Patterns of rest remind us of the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. It is not of works. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Is why rest can be an important spiritual principle and pattern in our lives. We rest to remind ourselves that from beginning to end, God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Rest reminds us of that. Think back to the nation of Israel. Every seven years, what are we going to do? We don't go and put seed in the ground. We're not going to go and use all of the farming methods we've been using over the last six years which have proven themselves to be profitable. What are we going to do? And God's saying to them, Look, I got this. You just trust me and my promises to provide for you. And those things become reiterated for us in the New Testament that all things work together for good. And lastly, we rest to remind us that our work is important, but it is not decisive. Our work is important, but it is not decisive. One of the values that our elder board has is summarized in the phrase, we want to work hard and rest well. We want to work hard because our work is important. But we want to rest well because it's not decisive. So I don't get a pass on whether or not I prepare to stand before you week in and week out 
and share and communicate God's word. I got to work hard. I got to flip those pages. But that work's not decisive because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I've been called to be faithful to tell you what God has said. The Spirit does the decisive work. And that is true throughout every aspect of our lives. Thursday night, we're called to work hard. We're called to be here. Called to smile. We're called to say hello. We're called to give tickets for games and lollipops and way more sugar than anybody actually ever needs to have in their life. But that work is not decisive work. Here in a few minutes, we're going to go down and we're going to work. It'll be fun work. We're going to work and we're going to pack shoeboxes. We're going to do so for the goal and for the intent and purpose that kids who might not get a Christmas gift will get a Christmas gift and we'll hear about the love of Jesus. So we're going to do some things and we're going to, we're going to work at it and it's going to be fun. It's not going to be exhausting work, but it still is work, but it's not decisive work. Even as we think through Grace Kids 2020, what we do in giving, what we do in praying, what we do in planning is all important. But it is not decisive. We work hard, but we rest well. And that's what you see in the differences between days one and six and day seven. God's at work in days one and six, and then he rests. Not because he was tired, because he wanted us to see that while our work might be important, it is not decisive. So I've asked the band to close this morning with the song, Cornerstone. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. This is one of those songs where, quite frankly, I could sing it every Sunday morning. Because it's a song that just puts in it and has within it the very heart of the gospel. But day seven is all about the gospel. It is all about God patterning for us what rest looks like. That getting further developed in the nation of Israel, but then also being clarified in the New Testament as something that's spiritually significant because while our work is important, it is not decisive. So would you stand as they lead us as we sing?